taking over the world. Pinky and the Brain, an animated television series that first aired in 1995, began each episode with the identical snip of dialogue. One of the genetically altered lab rats, Pinky, asks a question with all the open curiosity of someone who has no idea what answer he'll receive. Gee, Brain, what do you want to do tonight? His pal Brain always answers, the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Once when my eldest was seven years old, she and I went to hear a visiting priest give a parish mission at our church in Chicago. The priest opened with a question. If Jesus came into your kitchen, sat across the table from you, and told you that you could have one thing, what would you ask for? He then proceeded to list stuff he thought we could plausibly want. Would you ask Jesus to cure your mother's cancer? Or maybe you'd ask him to heal a broken marriage or bring back a child you'd lost to miscarriage. As my daughter and I looked at one another in disbelief that these were the best the priest could come up with, she whispered to me, Duh, parousia. Some of you listening will recognize right away that my daughter, at age seven, must have been enrolled in level two of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. For both of us, steeped in the method developed by Sophia Cavalletti in Rome, the one thing anyone could ever want from Jesus was a no-brainer. Parousia, also called the second coming or final judgment, is that time the prophets promised us when God will be all in all, when death will be no more, and when God will wipe away all our tears. On that day, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole world as waters cover the sea. My daughter and I understood that at Parousia, all mothers will be free of cancer. Marriage would be transformed and subsumed into the communion of love that the saints enjoy in heaven. And no one, especially not children, will die. St. Paul provides us with the great definition of parousia as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. That's from Ephesians 1. Before I began to be steeped in the work of Sophia Cavalletti, though, I would have answered the priest's question differently. If Jesus had asked me back then, I would have said, Help me to complete my novel. Let the novel be critically acclaimed, and let the proceeds from its sale be enough for me and those I love to live on. Each day when I sat down to clack away at my typewriter, I would light a candle on my desk. I intuited that if I excluded the vertical dimension of reality, I would write poorly and incompletely. But when I lit my candle, my prayer was for God to make things happen according to my wishes, my plan. I was essentially treating God as my errand boy. 
In Pinky and the Brain, we learn that one of the rats is a genius, the other's insane. And you think that the one named Brain must be the genius of the pair, right? But very soon you realize that Brain is a megalomaniac who does the same thing over and over again while expecting different results. That's Einstein's classic definition of insanity. Meanwhile, you wonder, could Pinky's openness, simplicity, and joie de vivre be signs of genius? Prayer. Do we Christians face reality so differently that you could tell us apart from a pair of cartoon lab rats? I mean, with the naked eye? Are our thoughts about how to bring about the world's improvement appreciably different from those of our atheist friends? Many Christians seem to agree with the general consensus that the secret to improving the world involves getting people to vote a certain way, or raising a vast quantity of money, or passing new laws. In other words, we favor the same method that everyone else uses. Power. For smaller, more local problems, we attempt to convince the other that she is wrong. If that doesn't work, we meet with his supervisor, contact the local authorities, complain to the board, begin a letter-writing campaign, or hire a lawyer. All of these methods have one thing in common. They involve overpowering others, either through personal communication, a political process with financial leverage, or by legal means. Christians might employ one further invisible resource. We enlist God to force a victory over those, even ourselves, who stand in the way of our solutions. The petitions ask God to change minds, or grant wisdom to our leaders, or to deploy the peace of Christ in a strategic manner that will wrest outcomes in their favor, in our favor. When we favor power in this way, we reveal what we actually believe. The law of the jungle, might makes right, survival of the fittest. The prayers that come out of this mostly unconscious and unexamined view often express contempt for one's own weakness and beg for greater strength in order to subdue whatever stands in the way of what we want. We can even introduce this bid for power into our spiritual lives. I have a friend who believed that if she could just wake up at 5 a.m., before her five small children woke up and take time to pray in silence, it would improve her spiritual life and her parenting would be more peaceful and loving. She prayed and prayed to God to give her the strength to get up when her alarm rang at 5 a.m., but each morning she'd turn it off and go back to sleep. Then she'd be disappointed and frustrated, and she couldn't understand why God wouldn't help her. Ask and you shall receive, right? 
She asked me, why can't I get up when it's something I desire so much? I told her, because you don't desire it. She looked really skeptical. I said, look, no one desires to get up at 5 a.m. First of all, because it's inhuman when you're getting as little sleep as you do already. But second of all, because to wake up at 5 a.m. is not a desire. It's a plan. It's a strategy you have thought up in order to respond to your true desire, which is something else. What you really want is to face your children in a more human way, in a way that is fully alive. You want your life to be throbbing with divine life. Getting up at 5 a.m. is your scheme about how to accomplish what you desire. It's not the desire itself. I suggested that she stop asking God for help to wake up at 5 a.m. and instead ask him to help her face her children in a more human way and to fill every moment of her day with the awareness of his love and mercy, but ask him to do it his way. The title of our talk, The Victory That Conquers the World, comes from the title that Father Julian Caron chose for the Saturday afternoon portion of the 2019 Spiritual Exercises of the Fraternity of Communion and Liberation. So we are listening now with the hope that we might gain insight into how to take over the world. In fact, Crone often returns to this theme, as did Giussani. The victory that conquers the world is our faith. Here is the scriptural context for this verse, from 1 John chapter 5. For whoever is begotten by God conquers the world, and the victory that conquers the world is our faith. Who indeed is the victor over the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is nonsense. Children can repeatedly chant, I do believe in fairies. And if they happen to be in the right theater at that moment, Tinkerbell will revive. But when Christians believe with all their strength and intelligence, while standing over the dead body of a family member, that person does not return to life. Merely praying for a promotion, simply believing that God will cure our cancer, or trusting with the correct spiritual discipline we can solve world hunger and wars or resolve economic injustice, all these things are reckless, irresponsible, and foolish. Don't we also need to produce good work at our jobs? Go to the doctor, donate to famine relief, volunteer at a soup kitchen? But then what role does believing have in how we engage in the world's problems? Actually, our problem has nothing to do with a false dichotomy between faith and action Instead, the difficulty lies in our anemic and reduced understanding of the words faith and belief, the root meanings of faith and belief.
Matthew Arnold wrote in Literature and Dogma, and faith is neither the submission of the reason, nor is it the acceptance, simply and absolutely upon testimony, of what reason cannot reach. Faith is the being able to cleave to a power of goodness, appealing to our higher and real self, not to our lower and apparent self. Being able to cleave to a power of goodness, appealing to our higher and real self. Matthew Arnold's definition appears in the entry under faith in the online etymological dictionary, where we learn the origin of the word from the root fidere, to trust, from the PIE root, which means to trust, confide, persuade. All of these original meanings are verbs that presuppose the existence of a relationship. We only learn to trust or confide in someone whom we already know because we've met one another. The original Greek word that St. John uses in his letter, pistis, means to convince or to put your trust in someone, as in marriage. Perhaps the best synonym for faith could be loyalty. Just as spouses make vows to be faithful to one another, the faith that the Bible invites does not involve assenting to a list of propositions. For example, I believe my husband is handsome, or my husband is worthy of attention, or even I love my husband. But instead, faith demands we remain loyal to a person, that is, we stay with that person in any case, the roots and definitions in both English and Greek imply that the believer is someone who has become persuaded of a person's identity. This first movement of faith is the reason why we make the mistake of thinking that sharing our faith means persuading others to adopt certain ideas about God. But faith isn't complete without a second movement, recognizing who the other is and what she means to me necessarily leads to cleaving to not any idea as Matthew Arnold would have it, but to this other person. Christian faith means to recognize an exceptional presence. Furthermore, we recognize that this exceptional presence is the greatest love of our lives, the source that generates us, and a companion so full of tenderness for us that to spend time with him means to be changed, perfected by his gaze of love. The second movement is the judgment, to use Giussani's term, that flows from recognition. When faith is true, this cleaving produces a sticking together or a unity a remaining faithful that cannot be broken even by the threat of death or by death itself. The English word believe has an even more striking etymology. The OED tells us that the word's root comes from an intensifying prefix and the PIE root, which means 
to care, desire, and love. To believe, then, is to care, desire, and love intensely. While the Greek word pistis doesn't include this connotation, the theology of St. John proposes that we consider love as identical with God and the love we share as a participation in divinity. Thus, reclaiming the original root meaning of the word believe will help us better understand the connection between our faith and taking over the world. Baptism. Our baptism is the active source of an ongoing stream of divine life flooding our mortal bodies. This spring gushed out of the ground of our lives at the same moment we emerged from the baptismal font, but it has continued to flow ever since that date, and each one of us can drink from it today. The higher and real self that Matthew Arnold mentioned was born at our baptism and is identical to the real presence of Christ who took residence in the flesh of each one of us. Christ's intimate life within us doesn't end when we forget he's there. He doesn't show himself to the door if we declare that we no longer believe in him. Instead, with extraordinary patience, he waits for us to grow into the awareness of what we already and truly are. The root of the word patience is also in the word passion. Christ's passion continues in the world and plays out in every human heart where he suffers patiently until that day when we will cease to ignore him and begin to accept the ultimate truth about who and what we are. Beloved by him. Prayer in its most basic and aboriginal form is the recognition of this divine presence that I bear and the acceptance of my own true identity as God's beloved. With this recognition and acceptance, I do not need to use any words in order to pray. Before we utter even one word to God, we must intuit that he's actually able to hear us. If God is everywhere, as many say, then speaking with him could be a kind of formal exercise, or like summoning a genie. But if he has joined himself to my life and now lives in and through my life, then I can know him and he can know me in a deeply personal and sometimes uncomfortably intimate way. If I conceive of him as somewhere out there, then calling on his name can feel like shouting into a void. Instead, if he's someone who can see from my eyes, feel what I feel, and touch what brings me frustration or joy, then I don't have to inform him of my needs and desires. In fact, he is the one who planted within me an infinite desire that is the source for all my little desires. But do I know his desires? Do I pay attention to him as closely as he does to me? 
Am I loyal to the fact of his presence in my flesh? Do I follow him or do I expect him to follow my own wishes? After outlining all the many times in the gospel when Jesus prayed to the Father, the general instruction on the liturgy of the hours tells us, prayer directed to God should be united with Christ, the Lord of all men, the one mediator through whom alone we have access to God. Christ so unites the whole human family to himself that there is an intimate and necessary relationship between the prayer of Christ and the prayer of the whole human race. The general instruction continues by explaining that by virtue of our baptism, we may participate in Christ's priestly work of prayer. And then it quotes St. Augustine, God could give men no greater gift than to make his word, through whom he created all things, their head, that they in turn should become his members. The Son of God has become the Son of Man, one God with the Father, one man with men, so that when we speak to God in prayer, the Son is not separated from the Father. When the body of the Son prays, the head is not separated from the body. It is the one Savior of his body, our Lord Jesus Christ, who prays for us, prays in us, and is prayed to by us. He prays for us as our priest. He prays in us as our head. He is prayed to us as our God. Let us recognize, therefore, our voices in him and his voice in us. Let us recognize, therefore, our voices in him and his voice in us. And then the general instruction adds, Christian prayer draws its dignity from its sharing in the filial relationship of the only begotten Son to the Father. The prayer he expressed in his earthly life with his own words in the name of and for the salvation of the entire human race, he continues to address to his Father in the whole church and in all her members. So then prayer means entering into and participating in a conversation among divine persons. Have you ever watched children double dutch jumping rope? As the jumper prepares to enter the swiftly turning ropes, she will often rise up onto the balls of her feet and bounce to the rhythm of the rope, in this way preparing her body to leap in and stay free of entanglement. She must also, with intense concentration and attention, look at and listen to the turn and rhythmic beat of the ropes before she can jump in. We must also pay attention to the divine conversation that both precedes us and will last beyond our time on earth. The rhythm of this conversation must enter into our bodies. So where do we look and what do we listen to 
In order to attune ourselves to this conversation, we want to enter. There are three privileged places where the divine conversation may be observed and heard. Scripture, especially the Gospels, the liturgical rites with all their given prayers, and reality. One, Scripture. Immersing ourselves in the events of Scripture places us squarely within the story of Christ's encounter with us and supplies our lives with endless delight and wonder. In order to understand how this is possible, we must understand the Hebrew word zikaron, which means memory. For the Jewish people, and thus for Jesus, Memory does not mean the mental exercise of summoning a past event into one's thoughts. Rather, zikaron means to enter into one's own history and to become a protagonist of this history. For the one who practices zikaron, time does not follow a straight arrow. Instead, time is the medium that God uses in order to meet us and free us. Zikaron becomes, then, the means for engaging in the greatest events in sacred history and allowing these events to impact and shape and invest and save us. As the Talmud explains, in every generation, a person is obligated to regard himself as if he personally left Egypt. This Talmudic instruction is offered in the Passover Haggadah, or prayer book, to help everyone celebrating this feast understand that Passover is no mere commemoration of a disconnected historical event. Instead, each of the faithful must face whatever it is that enslaves her, and then follow Moses through the Red Sea to freedom. When the Jewish people read aloud from the Haggadah, they are reading the story of their own lives, seeing the divine pattern of liberation playing out in the reality of their own experiences. When Christians read the Gospels, we are asked to practice Zikaron too. We see this most dramatically during the reading of the Passion narratives during the Holy Week liturgies. This is why we also must stand and read our part. In fact, in every generation, a Christian is obligated to regard herself as if she personally was nailed with Christ to the cross and also then rose from the dead through, with, and in the risen body of Christ. De Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation says, of the books of the Old Testament, they give expression to a lively sense of God, and in them the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. And of the entire Bible, De Verbum tells us, for in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks with them. If salvation is present when we read scripture, 
This means Christ is present because he is our salvation. Reading the Bible means meeting God and listening to him speak. God remembers us, keeps us in mind, and this remembering is an antonym of dismembering. It knits us together, gathers us into one body, gives us integrity and wholeness. Returning to the general instruction on the Liturgy of the Hours, this passage is especially helpful to our understanding. Whoever prays the Psalms and the Liturgy of the Hours does not say them in his own name, so much as in the name of the whole body of Christ, in fact, in the person of Christ himself. If he keeps this in mind, difficulties disappear. Even if while saying the Psalms, his own feelings differ from those expressed by the psalmist. For example, if we find ourselves saying a psalm of jubilation while we are worried or sad, or saying a psalm of lament when in fact we feel in good spirits, this may easily be avoided in merely private prayer when a psalm can be chosen to suit our mood. In the divine office, however, even someone saying the hour alone is not praying the psalms privately, but recites them in the name of the church and according to the sequence given in her public prayer. Whoever says them in the name of the church can always find a reason for joy or sorrow, finding applicable to himself the words of the Apostle, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and be sad with those in sorrow. Human weakness and selfishness is thus healed by charity, so that the mind and heart may harmonize with the voice. Not only do the Psalms provide us with the divine language we need in order to voice the words of Christ in his ongoing Trinitarian dialogue with the Father, but they can heal us by helping us grow in compassion and empathy as we learn to align our emotions with those of a given Psalm. We've recorded morning prayer for each of the seven days of the week from the Little Red Book of Hours in order to provide an opportunity during Lent for you to pray these psalms during Lent. The best way to use the audio recordings would be to read and sing along, but they will also bear fruit in your life if you choose to simply listen to them. The Plan of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And in John's Gospel, after the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus says, as he did repeatedly throughout the Gospels, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. We can recall that the letter to the Ephesians says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ, 
in heaven and on earth. The Greek word for to sum up is anakephaliomai, and it means to recapitulate. Both the Greek and the English words include the etymological sense of bringing things together under a head, kaput, or in Greek, kephale, from which we get the word cerebral. Different Bibles translate the Greek word differently. Here are some translations. To bring into one the whole in Christ. To store up or include all things in Christ. Restoring the whole creation to find its one head in Christ. To collect in one all things in Christ. To gather together in one all things in Christ. To unite all things in him. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or to be joined together in Christ as the head. In other words, God's plan is for communion in Christ. A cosmic communion of love prefigured by the unity of the Trinity and destined to fill all of reality at Parousia when Christ comes again. During the Last Supper, Christ prayed for us to live this unity. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To pray means, first of all, to enter this communion and to live our awareness of having been united in love through our baptism to the divine presence of Christ, as well as to our fellow humans. The protagonist of history is the beggar. But look, Suzanne, Father Giussani told us we should beg, and therefore, more than all this squishy idea of entering the divine Trinitarian conversation, prayer is asking for what we need, why complicate the matter with this stuff from St. Augustine and these documents and etymologies? Yes, we need to become beggars if we want to be protagonists. Communion through, with, and in Christ means that we begin to desire what he desires. In order to desire what he desires, which can be summed up as doing the will of God, 
or living in radical communion with all things in heaven and all things on earth, we need to step into his skin and walk in his shoes. When Christ begged the Father for humankind to join the oneness that he lives with the Father, he expressed his greater desire. When he taught us to pray, he broke down the list of things he desires into smaller, instructive units. That God's name should be venerated and adored. That the kingdom of God should come. That God's will for unity be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is in the communion of saints that we all receive the sustenance we need. Embedded in the phrase, our daily bread, are all those others God loves, including those who have no bread. So this petition is also a desire that all should receive their daily sustenance, and it's a call to feed the others if we have more than we need in any given day. He also wants us to ask for forgiveness, and to in turn forgive others. This communion is impossible without the mercy of the Father. We need to both receive divine mercy and to practice it. Otherwise, all unity among us breaks down. That we be spared the final test at Parousia and that we be delivered from all evil are the final two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Each thing that Christ teaches us to beg for contributes to the building up of our communion in Christ. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, do we merely repeat words or do we let Christ's desires infect us? Prayer must generate an incarnation in us. As Christ's desires become our own, we can say more clearly and with greater certainty, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Father Giussani told us that conversion happens at the level of desire. Five years ago, I began the spiritual discipline of praying the Lord's Prayer seven times per day, in addition to praying it in the context of Mass or the Daily Rosary. It troubled me that my heart couldn't ask for the seven petitions spontaneously, with longing. Instead, I often felt I had to start over because I would get to the end of the prayer and realize that I prayed it so mechanically that I couldn't even remember having said it at all. So I choose one of the petitions and meditate on it throughout my day. I'd read what the church fathers had to say about it. I would change the words around, add some in order to clarify, in order to make the phrases new for myself, and to try to remove the crust of habit that had formed over this prayer for me. To give one example, thy will be done. As an adult, I had meditated often on the passage in Ephesians, so I had been exposed to the knowledge that God's will is for a cosmic communion summed up in Christ. Yet, when I said the words, Thy will be done, 
I did not connect what I said to my knowledge. Instead, and at best, I'd summoned to mind a kind of fatalistic helplessness in front of God's will, as though I had no access to recognizing it and embracing it as a personal mission. This attitude is one that I had imported from my childhood when I would pray these words without any guidance about their meaning. It required great attention and discipline for me to try to shift from that immature and incorrect association with the petition to the one I knew to be true, and it involved years of daily work to get to the point where my emotional and intellectual association with thy will be done became a cry from my heart for Christ's communion of love to grow until it fills all reality, that is, for parousia. Now when I come to that phrase, my longing is stirred, and I remember, Zikaron, that all my needs and desires boil down to this one, great desire for Christ's love to suffuse and unite all reality at parousia. The memory is very sweet. It provides a foretaste of the joy Christ longs to set the world on fire with. What could be more precious than this? What could possibly be more important? So first we must allow our desire to be soaked in and permeated by Christ. The thirst for communion must become what we most long for. Begging for Christ's kingdom means first immersing ourselves in all that Christ taught about the kingdom in his parables. To embrace these parables as keys to fulfillment and to recognize them as the pattern of God's love slowly and secretly growing throughout all of reality. Once we recognize these patterns, we can begin to cooperate with them as a means of collaborating with God, who has, from the moment of our generation, invited us to the sacred work of tending his garden. 2. Liturgical Prayer The Greek word for memory is anamnesis. Anamnesis corresponds to the Hebrew word zikaron. During the Last Supper, Jesus used this word when he commanded us to do this in memory, anamnesis, of me. In October of 2000, in his general audience, St. John Paul II said, The interweaving of God's remembrance with that of man is also at the center of the Eucharist, which is the memorial par excellence of the Christian Passover. For anamnesis, the act of remembrance, is the heart of the celebration. The past of the body given for us on the cross is presented alive today, and as Paul declares, opens onto the future of the final redemption. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Eucharist is thus the memorial of Christ's death, 
but it is also the presence of his sacrifice and the anticipation of his glorious coming at Parousia. It is the sacrament of the risen Lord's continual saving closeness in history. In 1979, in a Vatican statement, we find this explanation for the word anamnesis. The traditional understanding of sacramental reality, in which the once-for-all event of salvation becomes effective in the present through the action of the Holy Spirit, is well expressed by the word anamnesis. We accept this use of the word which seems to do full justice to the Semitic, that is the Jewish, or in other words, Jesus's background. Furthermore, it enables us to affirm a strong conviction of sacramental realism and to reject mere symbolism. The consecration during Mass, when we remember in the sense of being the opposite of dismembering, the historical events that punctuated Christ's earthly life, as well as our own integrity as the unified body of Christ, is the most intense and complete moment of anamnesis on earth. Nonetheless, every liturgical rite and prayer of the church bears this function. Let's look more closely at the beginning of the blessing and invocation of God over the baptismal water that takes place during the rite of baptism. Father, you give us grace through sacramental signs, which tell us of the wonders of your unseen power. In baptism, we use your gift of water which you have made a rich symbol of the grace you give us in this sacrament. At the very dawn of creation, your spirit breathed on the waters, making them the wellspring of all holiness. The waters of the great flood you made a sign of the waters of baptism that make an end of sin and a new beginning of goodness. Through the waters of the Red Sea, you led Israel out of slavery to be an image of God's holy people set free from sin by baptism. This prayer continues to trace the role of water in the history of salvation up to Christ's own baptism in the Jordan and then to our baptisms. The water in the font thus mysteriously bears each of these historical events from the dawn of creation to the great flood and including the Israelites' passage through the Red Sea. Each of these events involves a movement from death to life, from limits to freedom, when God created living things out of nothingness, when he renewed human life through Noah's family. And finally, the Israelites' miraculous escape from certain death at the hands of Pharaoh's army. When we entered the baptismal waters, we also participated in these events. Most of us were unaware, but our baptism was our first Passover and our first Easter. Easter. 
During the Easter Vigil, on the evening of Holy Saturday, when the deacon sings the exultate, we hear these extraordinary words. This is our Passover feast, when Christ, the true Lamb, is slain, whose blood consecrates the homes of all believers. This is the night when first you saved our fathers. You freed the people of Israel from their slavery and led them dry-shod through the sea. This is the night when the pillar of fire destroyed the darkness of sin. The chant repeats these words, This is the night, as if to drive home the fact that at this very moment we are mysteriously, but certainly, also present, truly present, at the Exodus, and we are actual witnesses to Christ's death and resurrection. The pillar of fire refers to one way that God the Father manifested his presence for the Israelites in order to guide them as they fled from Pharaoh. But this pillar of fire also refers to the Paschal candle, newly blessed and lit for the first time with a blessed fire started from scratch. This pillar of fire embodies Christ's resurrection and is a visible sign of God rescuing us from death. 2.5 Fasting Fasting as a discipline belongs also to liturgical prayer. That's why I call it 2.5. Fasting is a prayer that we say with our bodies, and we can include it with the many other prayer gestures we perform. For example, genuflecting toward the presence of Christ when we enter a church, dipping our fingers in holy water, making the sign of the cross, kneeling, sitting, standing, beating our breasts, bowing our heads, eating, drinking, speaking, singing, listening. Each of these actions involves our bodies, requires we use our bodies to express our heart's attitude or position in front of the mystery we contemplate. When we fast, then, we provoke an empty feeling that can rhyme with Christ's longing when he prayed, may they all be one as you, Father, and I are one. If you're like me, feeling hungry can be extremely distracting. To be capable of recognizing that our physical emptiness is a gift that helps us to grow our thirst for the unity and integrity of Christ might prove to be hard to remember when other cravings assail us. One great help for me comes from one of the Psalms, Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. For you my soul is thirsting like a dry, weary land without water. I often pray these two verses throughout the day whenever I remember them or whenever I experience desires or physical hunger. 
They serve as a kind of reset button when my schemes take over my thoughts. If you think they could help you approach fasting in a more useful way, then copy the words down on a scrap of paper and look at it frequently throughout your days. But the purpose of fasting is not just to make ourselves feel empty in order to experience holy longing. No, the true purpose of fasting is to incite in us a hunger that will remind us to continually search the stuff of our everyday lives for ways that Christ wants to break through to us and to fill our emptiness with his great tenderness and mercy. I'll share an example from my own life. A little over two years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer of the tongue. I underwent first surgery, then radiation and chemo, and now I am cancer-free and in remission. But I bear in my body the reminders of these events, most particularly in a missing sense of taste and a continuing oral nerve pain that both force me to fast from most foods and also to fast from speaking at particular times. Sometimes I refer to this time beginning with my surgery in December of 2017 until the present as the Great Lent. During a time of greatest pain, I developed a method for facing the sense of powerlessness and affliction I felt. I'd say yes to every kindness offered. When the radiation technicians offered me a warm sheet, I'd take it. When my nurse would offer me cranberry juice or crackers, I'd accept them. If an aide offered to wash my hair, I'd say yes. I would accept each of these things as concrete shards of love, and I'd treasure them. I would and still do pray that God will please send me the miracle in whatever form he wishes it to take. And I would beg for the eyes to be able to recognize the miracle he would certainly give me. Those miracles flooded my life in the form of warm sheets, cranberry juice, and shampoos, and in many other surprising and completely unexpected ways. If we but open our hands, Christ wants to fill them with good things. 3. Reality When we pray, we often think that we are undertaking something that starts with us, our words, our thoughts, our yearnings, our activity. In fact, a life of prayer truly begins when we allow something that is outside us to break into our experience our thoughts, and our considerations. We have been considering two of the privileged ways that God has given, Scripture and the liturgical rites, to help us enter the divine Trinitarian conversation. The third way involves how we face reality. All three of these approaches to prayer come from outside us, and in order to live the fullest experience of prayer, we must engage all three. When we were children, we had far fewer filters 
we could, with a single glance at a puddle, discern reflections in its surface, determine its depth, and recognize debris floating in it. Maybe we could smell crushed leaves if they were soaking in the water, or perhaps we could hear the plash of raindrops pocking the puddle's surface. As we age, we see many more puddles, and over time we acquire psychological associations and memories that interfere with how we perceive everything. By the time we reach adulthood, we hardly see puddles at all because of the crust of habit that has coated everything in layer after layer of opinion, interpretation, or past impact. Sometimes the habits of seeing that we have stored within us supply needed information to help us understand what we see. For example, when my oldest two daughters were ages two and one, our family lived in Paris for four months. I hired a French woman to watch the girls for four hours a week so I could write. One day after the girls had been with their babysitter, my oldest accidentally knocked over her cup and spilled milk over the table and herself. She immediately yelled, Cochon! with a proud smile and a perfect French accent. She didn't know that the word means pig or that it was a nasty insult, but she was capable of perfectly reproducing what had happened. I was horrified that anyone could call my child a pig, so I fired that babysitter on the spot. Though much of what we learn as we age helps us to navigate in reality, many of the filters we acquire tend to warp or color what we see, such that often we cannot correctly discern whatever is happening in front of us. The Stoic Roman philosopher Marcus Aurelius jotted down a series of notes to himself. In one of them, he wrote, If you are pained by external things, it is not they that disturb you, but your own judgment of them, and it is in your power to wipe out that judgment now. Hmm. Unlike Marcus, I don't think it's possible or healthy or useful to wipe out all unpleasant or painful experiences. The pain from external things has much to teach us, and we also know that pain helps us when we are in labor or when we need to heal from a wound. There is a medical condition in which otherwise healthy people are incapable of feeling physical pain, and if these poor people have an infected wound somewhere out of sight, they could die because they don't get it treated. Something analogous is true about emotional pain. We come to understand our own inherent dignity when someone mistreats us and some deep integral part of us tells us that we were not made to be abused. On the other hand, being loved reveals to us that we were made for this and only this. Still, there is a kernel of truth in what Marcus Aurelius wrote. As in the example of the puddle, what we see often tells us more about what is inside us than what is outside us, and more about our past history 
than about our present reality. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Quid quid recipitur ad modum recipitantis recipitur. Whatever is received into something is received according to the condition of the receiver. Or a thing known exists in a knower according to the mode of a knower. Our condition or our mode can color or completely determine how we understand things. When my mother died, one of my teen daughters became very angry at God for taking away her grandmother. She expressed this anger to a friend of hers who replied, Why not be grateful that you got to spend time with her at all and that you were given such a grandmother? My daughter was amazed by this suggestion. She said that it helped her stop taking all the great things in her life for granted. Another example. A young friend of mine developed leukemia at age 19. My horror overwhelmed me. I was convinced that there could be no positive way to view this fact. But I turned to God and asked him very humbly, if there's anything positive here, please show me. Then I recognized it. The very fact that I was broken-hearted over this diagnosis was the sign of a miracle. How had I come to love this friend so much that I should feel crushed at the possibility of losing him? We were vastly different ages. We had never lived in the same city, and we only met because of our common interest in Father Giussani. And here I was weeping in public over him. Appreciation for this love overpowered all bitterness I had felt. It did not remove my pain and sorrow, but it changed how I perceived the pain. Instead of being a curse, it became a sign of this incredible love. Both believing that sorrow is a curse and recognizing it as a sign of love, are judgments. The first judgment is false because it doesn't take into account the reason for my pain. No one gave me that pain in order to harm me. Rather, the pain revealed the strength of my attachment and affection. Immoral behavior amounts to using things or people according to a falsehood. Therefore, it's morally imperative that we allow things and people to be precisely what they are and not substitute our opinions for a clear-eyed assessment of what is in front of us. And seeing things for what they truly are includes recognizing the love that animates and enlivens everything that happens. For Christians, this love is an indestructible love, a love that outlasts everything, a resurrected love. Reality can be the meeting place where we may seek and discover this extraordinary love. 
We do need a special disposition to see it, though, just as we need to attune our eyes, our ears, and our entire bodies to the rhythm of the swinging ropes if we want to be able to double-dutch jump rope. We need to scan everything that happens, paying close attention to the spin and whirl of events in order to perceive the presence of love in all things and to follow or cooperate with the rhythm of this love. 3.5 Giving Alms When his disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, first he provided them with the ways to address the Father as he does and how to form their desires and ours. Then, right after the gift of the seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer, Christ offers us a parable to help us understand prayer. Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. Let's suppose, just for a moment, that the little vignette Jesus offers here is not a parable. After all, he does not introduce it as a parable. Instead, what if Jesus wants to describe for us the way to pray through concrete actions that unfold in our daily lives? Then we could identify three different positions or possibilities for living events in such a way that our lives begin to embody prayer. The first position would be that of the friend who arrives at midnight. This friend brings his hunger with him. Often we think that courtesy demands we arrive at a friend's house with a hostess gift in order to defray the cost of our presence. But Christ wants us to arrive hungry. He wants us to go out to make the difficult journeys necessary in order to share our need with friends in distant places. When Mary formed the desire to visit Elizabeth, she left home because of a need to see, with her own eyes, the miracle taking place in her older relative's flesh. Yes, she wanted to minister to Elizabeth, but she also brought her own need for companionship in following the vocation the angel had articulated for her. Mary had a particular hunger, and this was the hostess gift that she graced Elizabeth with. Also, when Mary arrived at the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah, she must have had physical hunger after her long journey. Did she say to Elizabeth, 
Oh no, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Don't trouble yourself. Or did Mary allow her older relative to attend to her hunger? To go out and bring our hunger to others is not an optional step. Our need for love, for beauty, for truth, and authentic companionship, but also for food, water, shelter, and someone to bind our wounds, this need defines us as human and constitutes the common ground of the humanity we share with others. To hide our need means to withdraw our humanity and abandon our neighbors to face their own need in solitude. Pretending to have no needs is an act of cruelty. Pretending to have no needs is an act of cruelty. The host who receives this hungry friend at midnight offers us a second model for prayer in action. This man recognizes his own lack in front of his friend's hunger. He himself has no bread. How often do we stop here? We content ourselves by saying, I can't help because I don't have enough money or bread. Well, that's that. Meanwhile, the person in front of us is still hungry. But for the one who is alive to his visitor's need, not having what his friend needs doesn't offer an alibi. Instead, this recognition propels him out into the night to bother someone else. Jesus wants us to leave our own beds and homes, and he wants us to beg, literally. Before we even ask what this teaching could mean on a symbolic or allegorical level, we must consider that in answer to the disciples' question about how to pray, Jesus wants us both to bring our real needs to others and also to respond to the hunger of those who enter our lives by doing uncomfortable things, things that might make others irritated at us. Let's think about Elizabeth as she welcomed Mary into her home. How would she have felt about providing a meal for the mother of God? Put out? Overwhelmed by the idea of added tasks? Or disapproving that Mary hadn't, perhaps, packed enough food for her journey? What if the Blessed Virgin Mary were to show up at your door unannounced? Of course you'd be honored to feed her. So much so that if you didn't have anything in your pantry at the time of her arrival, you would immediately go anywhere necessary to get what she needed. This would certainly be one of the most delightful tasks you'd ever undertake. Yet Mary shows up at my door, at your door, every day. As a result of our baptism, each one of us has become God-bearer, Theotokos, Mary, to others. This presence of the risen Christ in the flesh of anyone who visits us could be as hidden from our sight as the fetal Savior was hidden from Elizabeth's eyes. 
The gospel tells us that the Holy Spirit filled Mary's older relative and made her cry out loud that Mary is the mother of my Lord. We also need the aid of the Holy Spirit to see the hidden presence of Christ in the human and fallible flesh of those we meet. Only the person who knows how to beg for salvation will recognize it when it greets them in the human voices that reach their ears. The third position Christ describes is that of the sleeping neighbor. In fact, we are often the sleeping neighbor. We don't want anyone to wake us from the dream in which we are comfortable and secure on our own. How often, though, does some idiot come banging on our door at an ungodly hour with some problem that has nothing really to do with us? We hear news of an earthquake in some far-off Asian country, or we read about genocide in a region of Africa that we couldn't locate on a map. Isn't our reaction, let me go back to sleep? Don't disturb the children. Go away. This past weekend at the New York Encounter, I heard a theology professor from Benedictine College in Kansas, whose name is Aaron Riches, give a witness about a moment when reality knocked on his door with unwanted and disturbing news. The beloved and holy pastor of the parish where his family had belonged for two years, committed suicide. He immediately wished that this had not happened, and his first instinct was to try to keep his children from finding out, to preserve for his children the dream of having their priest be impervious to weakness and despair. Riches told us that his wife, though, because she is wiser than he is, went ahead and told the children what had happened. So even though he wanted to say, no, go away, to the unwanted knock, his wife opened the door and allowed their children to wake up, too. Rich's wife, Melissa, also provided him with a point of light which helped him begin to see the event of his pastor's suicide as having, hidden within, a particular tenderness for him. She told him, The very way in which we received this news was writ in charity. Our friend called us to inform us so that we wouldn't learn about it in some other, more painful way. Thus, Melissa helped Aaron to begin to see the hidden presence of God in all his goodness and love within the unwanted knock. Later, at the priest's funeral, Rich's eight-year-old daughter asked to speak to the parents of the deceased pastor. When he brought his daughter in front of the priest's father, she burst into violent tears and hugged him. And the man, whose son had just committed suicide, said to the little girl, Don't worry. This is not the end of my son's story. 
His goodness and holiness will last. Aaron's daughter, from whom he wanted to hide the painful truth, was the one who led him all the way to the end, to this conversation with his pastor's father. Then, to affirm the gifts of holiness that they had received from their pastor, the Benedictine students who attended the funeral stayed at the gravesite until the workers came to shovel the dirt over the coffin. And they asked for the shovels so that they could be the ones to bury their beloved priest. This last act of charity moved Aaron so deeply that those of us listening could hear the emotion in his voice. Neither Mary nor Elizabeth fit the mold of this third person in Jesus' parable. Certainly God never responds to our prayers by saying, Go away, don't bother me. No, Jesus provides us with this third character because he knows us too well. We are the ones who say to reality and to God, No, go away. Jesus encourages us not to take no for an answer, but to keep knocking on each other's doors. We need to keep disturbing one another on behalf of those in need and for their own sakes, too. Prayer also involves our, sometimes reluctant, being disturbed, allowing ourselves and our children to be interrupted woken up, thrown off kilter, to be surprised. By considering these three different positions, we can begin to understand the dynamic of almsgiving and why it is such a powerful tool for growing in our journey of faith. We bring our need to others and we participate in and seek bread for their hunger in order to wake up. Taking over the world. But Suzanne, what does any of this have to do with taking over the world? If you become Christian because you think God will help you with your plan for world domination, then you probably need to find a new co-conspirator. God has already taken over not in the sense that he forces his will, but in the sense that everything already belongs to him and he holds it all in his hand. He tells us, through St. Paul's voice, all belongs to you, but you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. No matter what your plans entail, he already has a plan for world domination. His plan seems counterintuitive to us. It involves yielding where our instinct would be to forge ahead and impose what we perceive to be right. God's plan requires that we reveal our hunger to those around us. It asks us to meet one person at a time and to respond to that person's need whether we have bread or whether we need to go begging for it. 
and it invites us to lay down our arms and armor, to allow ourselves to be disturbed, inconvenienced, and woken. God asks us to open our doors. This is how he aims to achieve his plan for a cosmic communion of love through Jesus, who also came into this world hungry, who also sought bread to answer our needs, and who even had to overcome his own exhaustion and desire for silence when disturbed by people, some of whom, like the centurion servant, he did not meet in person. We need to do these things just because Jesus said so? No. As my own seven-year-old daughter perceived during that parish mission I described at the beginning of this recording, to desire God's plan for parousia is to desire the fulfillment of every hunger. To dive into the spinning ropes of the reality God gives us means collaborating with the only method that will yield what we truly need. So let's conquer the world together. If you have listened all the way to the end of this talk, please send me an email. My address is Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, at revolutionoftenderness.net. You could ask questions or give me feedback, positive or negative, or simply tell me about your day. I would like to get to know you and even to meet you. If you've listened for this long, then we are already friends. <laughs> Please bring me your hunger or welcome my own need or disturb me. This reading was brought to you by Revolution of Tenderness. For more information on the work of Revolution of Tenderness and Convivium, please visit our website at www.revolutionoftenderness.net. Thank you for listening.